must speak the truth about terror. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No collusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Rothkuchel. And we are recording right now on the afternoon of Wednesday, March 23rd. And uh, Jeremy, you just pointed this out to me, and I didn't even realize this. We just passed the 19th anniversary of the launching of the uh, U.S. Uh, second Iraq war in 2003. I didn't even realize. It feels like it didn't get that much traction, which is interesting in a time when um, increased microscope is being laid by some communities in terms of like the um, the war crimes carried out by the U.S. government, U.S. military in the event of a uh, Russia's actions in Ukraine. I didn't even uh, catch that we had just passed the uh, 19th anniversary. That seemed to go by without a whole lot of uh, of notice. I imagine next year will be different because next year's 20 years, but it just seemed like it kind of it just went by, and I didn't even hardly even uh, catch notice of it. Stop pushing kookspiracy on us, Greg. There was the Iraq War was already going on since the 90s. There was no launching well, of a, of an additional Iraq invasion in 2003. That's just a kookspiracy. That's WWRDD. What would Ryan Dawson do? I guess that's what he would say in this regard is that uh, the Iraq war was going on for years. And uh, therefore, to the March 2003 uh, launching of uh, Shock and Awe was just uh, it didn't mean anything because it was already going on. So I guess by that standard, I guess that's the uh, I guess that's the reality of the situation. We shouldn't talk about it anymore. Yeah. And meanwhile, we should really delve, continue to delve into the the actual origins of the launch of the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. And we know a lot, but we don't know everything, really. And the the fact that that, um, Gary Vogler's book that really paints a much deeper picture in terms of the level of the architecture of penetration in the specific Pentagon groupings that were uh, responsible then for the for the preparation of the post invasion period in Iraq and specifically around the oil and how he discloses the pushing of Michael Mikulski into a cr- the crucial position uh, of the Pentagon in terms of the maintenance of the the oil uh, aspect of the maintaining of the oil aspect of Iraq post invasion. Is so crucial, especially as you as as you hear from Vogler that that in t- inside of the U.S. intelligence uh, set that it was a notoriously known fact that it was almost for sure that Mikulski was a uh, a member of Israeli intelligence from his time in Israel, uh, being part of the Israeli Foreign Service, and he points out that. It's recognized that 90 something high 90 percent of Israeli Foreign Service uh, members are actually uh, Israeli intelligence. And that's the case in in, obviously that's usually the the official cover of of intelligence operatives around the world from many different countries, uh, State Department, diplomats, all of that. But that level. I think is way that's towards the extreme of where you're talking about high 90 percent 
of, of foreign service in Israel is actually intelligence. And as we pointed out before, over and over again, this is another key, unique, fairly unique piece of the Israeli warfare state is that it, that it is a perpetual warfare state uh, and that because of the domestic service requirements that, you know, large portions of the what's known as the civil side of the society, right, such as the government, some of the, the diplomatic services, but also in terms of the the corporate services, i.e. the quote-unquote private sector, i.e. cyber, especially the, this background of the Israeli military intelligence unit 8200, the Silicon Wadi, the Talpiot program, uh, the, the mass corporate sort of industry-wide sector penetration in relationship to those programs into the, uh, into the American cyber sector and, and Silicon Valley. Uh, and all of that is is really crucial to understand that you're dealing with a mass warfare state, a perpetual warfare state that is uh, there are no sectors that are immune. And now we pointed out over and over again that you could, obviously the origins of the of Silicon Valley and the internet itself in in terms of ARPANET, DARPANET in in an American context, obviously it's also a, a military intelligence. Uh, operation, but I doubt that you could say that some high ninety percent of of American um, foreign service officers are actually uh, intelligence officers. Now I imagine it's substantial, but it's not high nineties. And so the fact that a a notoriously known foreign intelligence officer. Who then, right? Remember, Michael Mikulski now ends up at the head of the of JINSA, of the Jewish Institute of National Security Affairs or National Security America, as it got renamed. Th probably the most militant, potentially, of the of the Israel lobby organizations in the United States is very very telling. And JINSA also remember was the the. In the or the early origins of the Talpiot program uh, in the late seventies, it looked like people that were in this in this Richard Pearl, Michael Ledeen kind of cell came through Jinsa actually, such as someone like Yosef Bodansky, uh, who who looks like he is part of the Talpiot program at some level. At the very least, he's Israeli military intelligence. I think he. Bodonsky comes uh, into to the United States, I believe, in the late seventies, uh, as the Talpiot program is is uh, getting going, and he comes out of working as the Israeli Air Force's journalist. That's obviously an intelligence position, and then comes in through through uh, through Jinsa into the uh, into the Pearl uh, Michael Ledeen. Network and so that that origin of the of some of the the high level planning for Iraq uh, from what's alleged to be the American Pentagon by by people exposed by Vogler in his book um, Iraq and the Politics of Oil published not that long ago I can't remember what year that was Greg but it was maybe 2015, 2016, something in there. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh, is is very. It shows that there's a lot more to be known about the actual architecture 
of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And Vogler makes a convincing case that even the oil part of the Iraq war, which was used front and center, it was basically for the, I would say, the controlled left peace movement in the United States that continues to this day, that more and more we even see these very sort of interesting and telling overlaps with with certain Russian sphere intelligence operations, hybrid warfare, especially in the wake of the fairly overt hybrid warfare uh, attack on the American elections in 2016 that, as we pointed out over and over and over, was transnational, international. It concluded lots of domestic U.S. elements, but it was sanctioned. It was it was sanctioned at the highest levels of the Kremlin. Putin knew, Putin uh, authorized the Russian part of the program. Now, Netanyahu in Israel was deeply part of it. So was Mohammed bin Zayed in the United Arab Emirates, which is now really coming front and center. It turns out it looks like that Paul Manafort just maybe this morning was uh, was turned back or had his passport revoked, uh, taken away from him when he was attempting to board a, a flight to to Dubai. And this, the, the UAE and Israel actually are the crucial tie-ins to the Russian aspect of the uh, 2016 operation via someone like George Nader, who was the, the, a key advisor for Mohammed bin Zayed and was also, the, he was the, the sort of like the bridge, the communications bridge between uh, MBZ and, uh, and Putin's Kremlin. Yeah, it's very interesting that um, that Paul Manafort would be headed for Dubai in a moment like this, where you just had um, the UAE and Israel and Egypt, I believe, for the first time ever hosted a three-part summit meeting. Um, I believe um, uh, Bashar al-Assad made his first ever visit to UAE recently. So there's a lot of uh, chessboard moves happening uh, geopolitically right now, and I would argue is at a bigger level connected to what um, – Seth Abramson, I think, is correctly identified as the grand bargain regarding uh, these foreign, all these foreign countries, not just Russia, but a number of foreign countries and the 2016 uh, U.S. presidential election and the United Arab Emirates role. I mean, we noticed that there was the UAE was important, but I think even like the focus on as bad as uh, Mohammed bin Salman was and all the stuff surrounding like the uh, the way it looks like he came to power. It looks like through potential torture of Saudi royals and, uh, and then, of course, the killing of Khashoggi and all that, um, it seemed to, that seemed to as important as Saudi Arabia as well. And it's still crucial right now, even um, something we may have to dig into at some point with the potential of uh, Saudi Arabia playing a key role right now in manipulating or in uh, gas prices being so high right now. We'd have to, I'd have to do more research and homework on that. But this crucial role of the United Arab Emirates, I think, uh, has been, um, hasn't gotten nearly as much attention. Maybe it's not as flashy as Saudi Arabia. It's not as big as Saudi Arabia, but it hasn't gotten as, as much attention, but it's very, very key in all of this. And then, um, and then Jeremy, I just wanted to circle back one more, something quickly you said real quick there about the, uh, the oil, the war for oil that you heard so much about. That seems to be, we talk about horseshoes all the time, and we're, we're sitting here reflecting on Iraq um, 19 years later. That's one of the horseshoes that we talk about, like within, the, within MAGA, the horseshoes, for example, or like media horseshoes that go from like one narrative that's supposedly completely counter to another narrative that's being put out, but is ultimately serving the same means and goals. You have like a horseshoe between the people who will blame the Iraq war on Israel, like, or particularly on a particular um, particular group of 
Israelis connected with a particular group of Americans and other Westerners who had a vested interest in seeing war in Iraq. And then on the other side of this kind of horseshoe, you have the people who blame the Iraq war on oil and actually say it's like anti-Semitic to say that like Israel played a, a key role in this. But in a lot of cases, like if you look at like an organization like Code Pink, for example, um, that you were involved in, I believe, a, a Zoom discussion or a conversation was done online the other night or you tried to get involved, um, that there's a lot of overlap between like the perspectives on, say, like Russia and Ukraine, for example. So that's another another one of these horseshoes that we're still dealing with, like like 19 years later. And I guess what I would say to that is increasingly where we're going with like connecting Russia in terms of like the bigger war on terror and the mean nature of the Moscow bombings and the war on Chechnya and Putin's rise and all of this and things that even happened after that, like even the Russian aspect of uh, events in Syria, is that even something like the U.S. war in Iraq should be looked at in a grand context as being in some ways interconnected with what we're seeing going on now, especially when you add in the networks, and the interests of the type of people who were involved in, uh, I'd say more of the Middle Eastern aspect of like this um, 2016 grand bargain, as Seth Abramson calls it, and this uh, geopolitical shifting that's gone on, it is interconnected. And so that's something that I think we don't need, you know, we might be among the only people to really shed light on from our critical perspective is the that not no no Russia and Ukraine or even actions that are taken by the Russian state in some ways are not a direct antithesis of like American global power or whatever or our own complicity in post 9/11 wars but ultimately in a deep way intertwines and interconnects in a lot of ways that's more or less how I'm looking at it now as we as we move on here and it does not absolve like our leaders or like the democratic establishment or whatever seen as um, pushing against like Russia right now is. Um, absolve them of complicity, obviously. Like, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of accountability to be held, including the current occupier of the presidency, who was a leading voice in um, supporting the war effort into Iraq, and of course, through Senate votes and and all of that. So not taking any attention away whatsoever, but I do think it's much more nuanced and complicated than just simply the bad Americans or the bad Zio Americans are waging wars and this complete um, counterbalance or antithesis that's way more nuanced than that. I think we don't need to lose sight of that. No, we don't. And and the president that the current president served as vice president for, i.e. Barack Obama, was against the Iraq war, actually. And what you see then is the there's a very strange overlap of rhetoric that you see coming in here. For example, I was on a a Zoom call with Natan Sharansky with the, I think it's the Institutes of Studying of Anti-Semitism. And I just posed some basic questions uh, that because Sharansky used language in it about uh, about Putin solving, which is, sounded so similar to what I pointed out about um, that, that Putin solved the Chechen the Chechen crisis when after he escalated the war. It sounded very similar to the way that Oliver Stone glossed over that by using the word resolved, resolved the uh, the Chechnya crisis uh, without going into any of the actual background of, of, of Russia's 9-11s, Russia's 9-11s, anticipating the United States is an actual 9-11, right? And, and none of that was, was actually addressed, but this word of solve or resolve, uh, which is, uh, the, these were, these were war crimes also. And then obviously the treasonous aspect that we've always pointed out in terms of once you start staging terrorism on on in your own on your own soil against your own alleged citizens 
you're now at even beyond war crimes. You're, be, you're, you're now dealing with the level of treason. And then so combining treason with war crimes, that's, that is hard. That's, that's a level beyond uh, uh, the criminality that we're familiar with in terms of the, the liberal world order, World War II establishment, where aggressive warfare alone is the highest level of crime. So if uh, aggressive warfare is the highest level of crime because it includes all these uh, subsequent and uh, subsidiary crimes uh, underneath it, then waging state, as I, as I asked John Yu when he was at the Dole Institute in 2012, did he believe that there was an American executive right to wage or stage war in, in, in the so-called homeland in order to pursue what is seen as executively understood national interests ab abroad. And of course, you admitted that there, no, that's not, that's not uh, uh, an executive, uh, an, uh, uh, an interpretation of unitary executive philosophy that I could go for. But covertly, this is exactly what those types actually believe. Any everywhere from Dick Cheney to Vladimir Putin believe that that, that as they identify themselves with the this the interest of the state, not necessarily of the nation, but the interest of the state. And now there might be internal justification about how the state's powers is is uh, necessary, but not sufficient to the nations uh, holding together. That they believe they have the right to then go the level above the level beyond aggressive warfare, which is staging war at home, i.e. treason, to then wage war, uh, aggressive war, invasion uh, uh, abroad. So that's what we're dealing with. And so Sharonsky, this, this, uh, this uh, presentation that he gave yesterday with the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism in Policy. Remember, this is, as we pointed out over and over again, Sharonsky is this core, crucial figure for, especially for the 21st century, for global uh, information geostrategy, really, as, as the godfather of the modern form of the new anti-Semitism, which is, this is what this institute really is about, I, I would assert, the idea of uh, uh, totally aligning in lockstep the idea of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism, uh, with, uh, with deep uh, cr criticism of the Israeli state, of calling into legitimacy the nature of the Israeli warfare and long-term uh, occupation and uh, uh, policies of ethnic cleansing state. And, but Sharonsky is also the godfather of the Bush doctrine, of the George W. Bush doctrine that came front and center post-2003 Iraq war. Uh, invasion about how this was going to be a uh, a war to sow, sow democracy uh, in the Middle East. But I, what I wanted to point out was that the, the title of this uh, of this presentation for the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy yesterday is Natan Sharansky, Israel, American Weakness, and the Russian Invasion of Ukraine. And as I pointed out to you, Greg, that the, there's only one adjective. Uh, or one sort of qualifying uh, word here, and I'm not, I'm not up on my uh, English categories here, but weakness, that sounds like a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a noun, right? Uh, but it's 
it's apply, it's applying the um, you know uh, an analysis or an ad, an adjective to the United States. There's no qualifier of the Russian invasion. It's just the Russian invasion. Uh, Natan Sharansky, Israel, that's just sort of stands on its own, but American weakness. And this is being put forth uh, front and center right now uh, in a very strange horseshoe where you have the left, where the, the controlled left basically saying that you have these bloodthirsty warmongers in the, uh, in the, uh, in the swamp of the the commanding heights of the military industrial complex and the the uh, establish the political establishment there that are out for blood out for russian blood and out for world war 3 and then on the other side of the horseshoe you have these sharonskys and a lot of the remnants of the alt right and maga right in the united states saying that this is a result of american weakness so there's not enough uh, bloodthirst in, in, in this case, while it's also then being said that there's total bloodthirst. And the last point here, Greg, and I'll pass it back to you, is that this reminds me very much of what Obama, the guy who was who the, one of the senators who was against the Iraq war, American senators against the Iraq war, uh, his advisor, his original, I think, Iran advisor, national security advisor, Dennis Ross, the day before we encountered him at the Kansas City Public Library when he uh, celebrated the use of uh, state force, violent state force. Now, it wasn't high levels of violence, but it was, it was state force against li a librarian and a, a self-proclaimed Jewish American patriot of conscience uh, on the basis of core political speech speaking out against the uses of terrorism, state, especially state-sponsored terrorism that would, you know, be violently uh, used against uh, all people, including Jews, such as the King David Hotel bombing is one example I brought up. Or I also brought up the uh, the letter bombs that were sent by the uh, by the Lehi Stern gang to President Truman as sort of the the uh, the lead side of the silver and lead uh, Zionist uh, deal that was presented to Truman. And then I asserted Zionist involvement in September 11th. And then the day before that incident where, where, uh, you know, we got, uh, ejected from a public event based on core political speech and a librarian along with me got arrested. And then we got prosecuted for more than a year while, uh, while by the way, by while, uh, um, now obviously dirty, really dirty, uh, former Missouri governor, Eric Greitens came into power and started signing off on bills to, to create a, a hate crime uh, legislation in terms of a blue line, uh, in terms of uh, any, any crime against police could be used then to say that that was a hate crime against police. And it, to me, it looked like that was being set up to actually to try to escalate charges against the librarian who was arrested. He went from having one a charge to then three charges uh, in, in the wake of, uh, of uh, Greitens coming in. And one, and I, I'll point out again that the Kansas City Police Department is the only one now in the country. It used to be just the, just the Kansas City and St. Louis, Missouri, who are police departments that are not overseen locally, but are overseen basically by the governor, by the state governor at the, at the state level. That in the wake of Greitens coming in, there's an escalation of these charges uh, and this pro uh, the charges against the librarian and the prosecution against both of us. And Dennis Ross, the day before he showed up there and then 
gl- gloated uh, while while all of this was happening, while state force was being used against a Jewish American dissident and uh, and a librarian who helped uh, organize the event that he was being paid to speak at, really, uh, that he wrote this article and published this article that said almost the exact same thing about his former boss, the then President Obama, that 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 the Air, the Arabs were only were now turning that the Israelis and the Arabs were turning to Putin now because Putin understood the use of coercive and violent force uh, more uh, more intently than Obama did, and so we're beginning to see a very similar kind of horseshoe, I think, now in relationship to uh, these takes by the West or. Israel or the Zionist West in relation, and that would include then, I would say, the limited hangout left Zionist, the so-called anti-war groups that never go into this missing component of the Iraq war. Yes, military industrial complex. Yes, certain kinds of oil interests, but then Israel, Zionist interests, and then the deeper architecture behind that, which includes the clean break, Doctrine and then the Oded Yanon uh, plan, which then actually, if you go read Oded Yanon, and we'll get deeper into this uh, over over the months, it actually describes very similarly what we're seeing in terms of a an understanding of the rise of autocracy, of of culture war, really, of the clash of civilizations, really, uh, and that's what's really being described even in the Oded Yanon. Uh, program, which is the 1980s precursor to what then becomes a much more policy-driven, we think, uh, uh, plan that comes out in 1996 and is presented to uh, incoming uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu by the Douglas Five types. And the Douglas Five types are at the epicenter, as Gary Vogler points out, of making sure that this notoriously known uh, Israeli, at the very least, foreign service officer, but very likely intelligence officer, Michael Mokovsky, is installed at the, the key commanding uh, heights position in terms of the Pentagon's uh, post-Iraq war uh, invasion oil uh, policy. And so there, there's a lot uh, going on here that is becoming sort of helpful and actually re-understanding all that was going on and all that continues to go on in terms of the ongoing cover-up of the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. And of course, the event that justified that uh, mass, uh, that mass crime, of course, being the events of, uh, of September 11th, which were used as a key part of the narrative of uh, the threat and everything, of course, that we continually talk about. And I wonder if um, F. Michael Maloof, the, Rus- the respected Russian state television contributor who was involved with uh, Fife and David Worms or knows about this uh, Michael Makovsky oil connection. I would wonder about that. <laughs> and then um, to follow up on what you were saying about a uh, couple things, Obama, he actually was a state senator in September of 2002, and he made a speech uh, critical of um, impending uh, war in Iraq. At that point, it was still months out, but this is when the, uh, the rhetoric, particularly from the Cheney types, were really beginning to escalate and move in the direction of this is going to be an inevitability. So that was uh, Obama's a state senator in September of 2002, I believe, made a major speech in Chicago um, criticizing the push for war. So that's what you were referring to. And then no, um, but I, was, more- I was also oh, referring to when, when he actually became a U.S. senator, he continued to say that that uh, the Iraq war was uh, 
bad po- was ro- was wrong policy was bad policy. That that's what I was referring to. And thank you for clarifying that though. That, that to point out that that Obama was not a U.S. senator when the actual votes for the Iraq invasion happened. Yeah, no problem. And uh, the other point, I was going to go back to this. Um, this horseshoe, and we keep talking about these horseshoes from the Trump era, whether it was um, a horseshoe between you know Fox News and Infowars and Rick Wiles and True News, or it's a, a horseshoe between, say, you know, Max Blumenthal and Tucker Carlson or whoever else. And we're seeing the remnants and we're seeing some, um, some new uh, variations of that same horseshoe, I would say, at play here. And what you described in terms of like the, uh, the push to declare – Biden and these uh, American leadership is just these unstable, um, bloodthirsty hawks who just want to um, who just want to put the squeeze as much as possible on Russia to try and uh, weaken it as much as possible and maybe even remove Putin from power or whatever. Um, that is very much, I'd say, the the narrative being pushed along with a lot of what aboutism by the um, what you talked about the Russia Gate is a nothing burger left. Uh, you're, your Max Blumenthal's, your Ann Mate's, your your Abby Martin's, your Code Pink's, and then also pushed by these uh, paleo conservative, like more of your quote unquote nationalist types, which would be people like Douglas General Douglas McGregor, who's like taken the role of like the key voice in terms of this um, hawkish, dovish horseshoe that's taking place on Fox News right now, where you have the uh, the Lindsey Grahams out there in bad faith making these provocative statements saying that, uh, you know, Putin needs to be assassinated or whatever. His own citizens need to rise up and kill him. And then you've got the horseshoe of Douglas McGregor on Tucker Carlson's show and on other places on Fox News saying that, uh, well, you see, actually, Russia's in the right here. This is all because of uh, this is all America's America's hawkish and all this. And uh, the Russia, you know, Putin's right to do this. So that's the that's the voice of the horseshoe. And he might be worth uh looking into further in the future, but that's just an example. And then you've got the typical, more or less like your typical MAGA never met like American patriotic intervention they didn't love or or escalation, rhetorical escalation that they didn't love who's out there. The usual suspects, um, the your aforementioned Lindsey Graham's and other people exchange, extending all the way, it looks like to Nishan Sharansky and Dennis Ross types who were pushing the narrative. And it would be hard pressed to find somebody like in this entire milieu of government officials, senators, um, think tank people that are within this aspect of things that are not pushing. And we talked about this before in our previous show or everything from woke culture to transgenders in the military to, um, oh, oh, uh, Biden won't let us drill our own oil all the way to weak military policies. And Trump wouldn't have let this happen in Russia because the Russians knew he was serious and he what a crock of of BS, but um, all of these narratives, it would be hard pressed to find anyone in this, like in this MAGA kind of a uh, neocon adjacent elements that are not making the statement that, well, you see, Putin's a tyrant and he needs to be stopped or whatever. He's a bully, but this is all because of American weakness. So you've got the horseshoe, and where it comes together is keeping the lids on this bigger 2016 operation and all that it's led to. Of on one hand, uh, Biden is the biggest warmonger in history, and the Americans are trying to start a new war with Russia, and you're using Ukraine as like a proxy for that or a sacrificial lambs for that, all the way to see America's actually too weak. And uh, the problem is it's because of our weakness that the void is being filled, whether that's being expressed by a uh, any number of officials from Lindsey Graham to Kevin McCarthy to Nikki Haley to General Jack Keane, on and on and on the list goes, to the Natan Sharansky and Dennis Ross types, who Dennis Ross was saying it six years ago. And um, 
Natan Sharansky is saying it now that it's, uh, oh, this is all because of weakness. Look, we don't necessarily like what's going on, but the, but justifying it in that, uh, well, this is a move that has to be made because the Russians know that Netanyahu or Netanyahu in the um, Arab, the good, the good Middle Eastern uh, Arab nations know that uh, our quote unquote allies know that Russia means business and they know that the Americans don't. So it's 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 very, um, very interesting. But I think it becomes pretty clear if you uh, look at it from this perspective that you've got just these uh, diametrically opposite on the surface narratives, but they are being used to advance the same bigger overall um, push for uh, desired outcomes, it seems like. Very much so. And I think we should point out that this McGregor guy, this sort of the new, he's like the new military guru for this horseshoe where it's endless appearances on Tucker Carlson. But now he's, as you pointed out to, good to me, Greg, he's on, uh, he's on with uh, the gray zone. He's on the, with Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté. And is is uh, we haven't watched it yet, but is is uh, anticipating is Max Blumenthal going to uh, have McGregor sort out his background uh, of calling the indigenous Americans Stone Age cannibals who lived in unspeakable filth or talking about rootless cosmopolitans being largely responsible for society's ills and things like that, that he. He, uh, you know, went after Allison Weir, who's never uttered anything even close to any of these kinds of things in terms of what Blumenthal was trying to accuse her of, of, of quote unquote, anti-Semitism in terms of her research around, let's say, the Parushim. And uh, that, that, that research goes back to uh, an article by Sarah Schmidt in the American Jewish Historical uh, Quarterly. Now, I may have been mistaken in saying that uh, this was a, an Israeli scholar, and I'm not sure if Sarah Schmidt uh, is an Israeli scholar, but she, she's uh, publishing in uh, the uh, American Jewish Historical Quarterly. And Max Blumenthal used the, the combination of that and then Allison Weir's uh, one um, appearance, I think, on a, uh, you know, a questionable sort of VT kind of alt-right kind of uh, associated show about how she needed to be rejected uh, from the from the Palestinian solidarity movement. Now, Max Blumenthal is just now hosting this McGregor guy, who himself has said all kinds of stuff that is, uh, you know, way worse than anything that uh, that Allison Weir was unjustly accused of. Let's say even. Uh, and so this is a very strange moment where, uh, and then we saw an interesting speech that you pointed uh, me to where Max Blumenthal is starting to sound like uh, a, a, some kind of cross um, between uh, David Icke. He's sort of like sounding a little bit like David Icke in terms of the COVID. He's talking about the COVIDians and, uh, and, uh, and they don't have any variants now to scare us with. And then, so he's in some level he's playing this role of a, of a of a of a sort of a COVID denialist to some extent. I mean, because we're still at a point where there's you know I, it looks like there's like probably about a thousand Americans still dying every day at in a dip of COVID and no recognition of dealing with the ideas of long COVID and and what is uh, even even then putting aside the question of vaccines and all of that. 
But Max Blumenthal is basically repeating this line that is really escalating right now that this, the, the, the drive to World War III by the bloodthirsty Western elites is really they're just trying to replace uh, COVID, which they've run out of variants. And now, uh, and so this is a very strange moment now to be looking at Max Blumenthal in this kind of uh, situation, I think, I think. Yeah, and this is the same Max Blumenthal who uh, appeared on a panel, I believe, coinciding with the RT 10th anniversary, the Info War. Will there be a winner with Charles Bowsman, proprietor of Russia Insider, who took off, who had a farm, it looks like, in Pennsylvania, in the, um, and where he hosted uh, people such as Eric Stryker and his National Justice Party and others in the lead up to January 6th. And then I believe left for Russia. I was, uh, the story goes that he left with his Christmas lights still up in his house. Um, after January 6th. So, I mean, Blumenthal's got a lot to answer for. And to be fair, Jeremy, and to be fair on this, you know, I, I think we will, we're both going to take uh, time, both plan on taking the time to listen to this, uh, to this interview with uh, McGregor that uh, I believe Blumenthal and Aaron Maté do. And we'll come back with perhaps some, uh, some feedback and some thoughts on it afterwards. But I would imagine that this is treated, my guess would be it's going to be treated like how Tucker Carlson is treated when the questions of his rhetoric were brought up like to the Blumenthal's or the Glenn Greenwald's of the world. And the usually there'll be like a rationalization of like, well, look, you know, it's uh don't agree with, we don't agree with some of his rhetoric, but he's the, he's providing the, the platform for the few people who are willing to tell the truth about what's going on, on a major television uh, platform that the liberal media will not, will not apply. And so therefore, that I would imagine maybe something like that's going to go on to where like and then also maybe maybe some type of like well your leaders are they're just as bad they just don't say it as overtly I don't know I mean I'll have to listen to it but seeing the way Tucker Carlson has been treated does not give me much optimism that uh, McGregor is going to have his feet held to the fire in terms of his very um, very combination of uh, of David Duke and Alex Jones uh, friendly talking points are going. Uh, that he has espoused and put out there at a very prominent level. So I don't have too much faith in that, but in the interest of fairness, we'll be listening to it to uh, to get an understanding of what is discussed in this interview, which it looks like the video is over two hours long. So it should be very interesting. And based on past interviews of figures who should have been not just uh, accepted by an alleged dissident journalist like Aaron Mate as, uh, you know, as just having the goods on the American war state, deep state, people such as Cash Patel or Rick Gates. Uh, and we always wondered whether Paul Manafort would end up on uh, Aaron Maté's show after he published his book. But it now looks like Manafort sort of has, uh, you know, potentially, potentially other issues going on here. We don't know. Uh, Stone and Manafort have recently uh, re reappeared together, uh, back on the same team altogether. And, uh, so Mate did not ask any really hard questions about the core of what, as you point out, Greg, that the, one of the main things being covered up here is what actually happened in 2016, 2015 and 2016 in terms of the attack on the elections and all, who all did it and why. And, and even I just saw just in the last day or so, that uh, on Tim Pool's show, when Jack Posobiec is on there, by the way, one of the favorite retweets of Oliver Stone's producer for his Ukraine films and then his his weird Kazakh uh, stand uh, film too. Uh, that's a very weird one. We'll, we will get into that in the next few uh, 
episodes, but the, that producer retweets Jack Posobiec all the time. But Jack Posobiec on Tim Pool, there was another woman who was a, a, a young journalist and she brought up that Manafort had been involved in Ukraine with Yanukovych. And Tim was seemed stunned, actually. He's like, "Get me, wait, let me get this right. He, and he's always, one of the main things that he delivers, Tim Poole, is that uh, that's one of the main reasons that he will basically believe the opposite of whatever any mainstream American media uh, says at this point is because they lied about Trump Russia, how it was nothing. There was nothing there. And he didn't even know that Manafort was involved in uh, in Ukraine with with Yanukovych. Now, that whole episode on Tim Pool show was then spun by basically saying, OK, but Podesta was also involved back then. And so that just proves that this is a nothing burger, a selective enforcement, maybe the hint was. It was never really drawn out what that all, all meant. You could then add, why didn't they add in uh, Bernie Sanders guy was also involved uh, in all of that. Uh, what's it? I can't remember his name, uh, Greg. Um, Tad Devine. And then ultimately, I'll just say this, is that what it looks like to me more than like an example of a nothing burger is some type of example of bipartisan uh, bipartisanship in terms of uh the in the bipartisan international like you know lobbying money making community going on with that that's how i would look at that and i mean and of course there's even a very strange like a uh, kind of strange bedfellows relationship that we've identified between some of like these clinton and trump operatives that we still need to really dig into in the future going back to the to the 90s and all that was going on with like the uh, the intrigue surrounding uh big, anyway the whole uh, David Brock network and all that media matters. And even going back to things like Vince Foster and the Clinton body count, this still needs to be identified and figured out from a long-term perspective to this day. You'll still see these Clinton operatives pop up on Tucker Carlson's show or Laura Ingram's show. And they'll have these arguments, but there'll be, there's like a, there's like, there's a, there's a strange bedfellows type of thing going on there long-term with that. I don't know if that's the case in Ukraine, but at the very least, it seems to me to be like, this is an example of like bipartisan, uh, What's the term like the pigs at the trowel, so to speak? Like that's what it seems like to me more than just being a nothing burger. Well, it's it's more than that because it actually speaks to the continuity of how pervasive the uh, eleven nine operation actually was, uh, and and obviously Hillary Clinton is maybe probably the key uh, public official I would say or former public official who is mouthing and airing out the Brzezinski. Uh, angle on on Ukraine, basically g- gleefully praying for some kind of uh, Afghanistan long drawn out um, insurgency situation for the Russians in Ukraine. Now, so that's obvious. She she's playing that role. But I would say that that the involvement uh, of these Ukraine touched people and the Manafort network, really, which is also remember the it's the that tied directly in with the Arthur Finkelstein network. Uh, who were crucial, and you, as you'll point, as we'll point out, that there was this uh, tie-in to the Israelis that was done through uh, Arthur Finkelstein's guy, George Birnbaum, who turned out to be uh, Finkelstein helped bring Netanyahu into power in '96. He helped save his political career, it looks like, and then uh, Finkelstein's guy Birnbaum becomes a. Uh, Netanyahu's chief of staff. And then Birnbaum is then the tie-in back into the 11-9 operation via via the Manaforts. And, the, and it's actually Roger Stone, I think, who's the one who becomes the uh, touch point 
for the Israeli, the Psy group component, the Israeli cyber warfare component of the 11-9 operation. So I would actually say that the appearance of these guys, the Tad Devines in the Bernie uh, campaign, Podesta in the Clinton campaign, Manafort heading up the the uh, Trump campaign in the early days, at the crucial days, really, in terms of the the uh, the early drive, is actually is is mirrors exactly what we saw in terms of what was proposed as Project Rome by Psy Group as to then be a uh, a tie-in to what was the uh, the Kremlin was already pursuing as its information operations. Now, we've also then explained there's this um, U.S. side of this that Manafort ties directly back into in terms of his use of Rove's IT guru, i.e. the election hacker, Mike Connell, of having brought Connell into uh, Ukraine 2004, where there was a very obviously stolen uh, election there for Yanukovych. And this is in the immediate surroundings, right, of the American 2004 stolen election via Rose, uh, same IT guru, Mike Connell, in relationship to Ohio. So if, if you tie all of these things in, the information warfare component and the mirroring of all these figures in, into the Project Rome, the Psy Group proposed cyber warfare uh, component of the 11-9 operation, which was meant to target and specifically sow discord really amongst this, uh, the Democrats really, of the disaffected Bernie Sanders people, the Clinton people. And remember, both those campaigns, and then you then have to tie in Jill Stein into this whole milieu you got the you got you got this whole operation running in all three of those key campaigns on the democrat uh, on the left side of it in terms of uh, Jill Stein being green but you have the the Clinton campaign being the obvious like dog that didn't bark you have their early the uh, in terms of the election fraud they didn't pursue a, 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 a recount or an investigation into these really strangely flipped at the last moment uh, and off from the polling elections in the Midwest and and uh, and Pennsylvania that happened at the end of 2016 that helped install Trump recognize on on 11 eight and then recognize as the installed president uh, on 11-9. The Clinton campaign tried to stop that, actually. And now Jill Stein's campaign did pursue it, but then seemed to run a limited hangout on it. Never got to the bottom of it. Never made any declarative statements about it uh, in, in the public. And then the Bernie Sanders campaign, and never, never, they were the dog that didn't, didn't bark in terms of their own, uh, primary obvious election fraud that was perpetrated against their, their voters. Uh, and, and one last thing is the Clinton campaign had pursued, they had said that they were pursuing the Pied Piper strategy where they actually proposed wanting to run against Donald Trump. Okay. We always pointed out this was very suspicious then, then that combined with the fact that they never raised a voice against the obvious, I would say at this point, obvious elements of election fraud that were pursued in, or in combination with this information warfare, voter suppression, destabilization of uh, the sort of the Democrat and left voters uh, in the run up to the uh, November election, all point to some much deeper and much larger operation in support by elements within all of these milieus. It doesn't mean that the candidates themselves or everybody involved in the campaign was involved with this, but this was a mass political warfare operation amongst many different national actors 
uh, including elements in the United States, but also mass elements in, in, in the Middle East that is now becoming so obvious. The Abraham Accords is actually part of a, of a turn of a, of a, 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 a siphoning off or a splitting off of, of those, uh, those countries to this Russian sphere at this exact, uh, point. And these, these people were the exact entities that were working together to uh, to uh, wage information warfare against these specific groups in terms of the potential Democratic voters. The Project Rome campaign by Psy Group, I believe, said, let's target uh, the uh, disaffected Bernie Sanders voters, the uh, suburban women. That would have been the Clint. They would have been sort of seen as the potential sort of Clinton support. Uh, and then uh, African-American uh, voters uh, who who then you could then see a sort of either a, a, a um, dissuading from voting or a breaking off into a Jill Stein kind of situation that all of this was tied together and actually shows exactly how deep and extensive the 11-9 operation was way beyond just the Trump campaign. Yeah, I believe our friend Chris Rulon would refer to Bernie Sanders as the sheepdog in 2016. He was the, you know, the ultimately never never raised, said a bunch of stuff and rabble roused, but never really did anything overly uh, meaningful in terms of like actually taking action to fulfill some of the things that he would talk about. But, well, uh, but he, then, he actually, you'd have to call him the failed, the purposely failed sheepdog because he didn't sheepdog enough Democrats to, to make it even look like Hillary Clinton won. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And going back to the Pied Piper strategy, I was actually about to bring that up with relation to George Birnbaum, because the uh, the Pied Piper scenario, I believe, focused on three candidates. And ironically, it was the three candidates who would have been the most favored of like this uh, hardline network surrounding like particular, obviously, like your Netanyahu interest in Israel, but then also this bigger geopolitical network. And that was Donald Trump, Ted Cruz and Ben Carson and George Birnbaum before Ben Carson dropped out of the campaign when it looked like. He was still somebody who was worth maybe potentially investing in as a potential candidate. George Birnbaum joined his campaign as foreign policy advisor. So uh, there's a there's a tie in there with the uh, the Carson campaign, which was part of this Pied Piper strategy. So there was a lot of bet hedging before Trump became the guy. And it was between these three candidates that were put out there in this Pied Piper scenario of let's focus on these guys because they'll be the easiest to defeat. And one last thing in terms of the Iraq potential recapitulation of the Iraq war scenario. And the, you keep reminding me of this, Greg, but that it looks like George Nader was not only the key tie in between the, the Kremlin's operations in the 2015, 2016 election attack be, between the Kremlin and the UAE, but obviously also, and this is remember uh, convicted, I believe convicted pedophile, George Nader, or at least was uh, imprisoned for it. Uh, I, I think it was child porn uh, when he came into the country. Um, that he was the uh, not only the tie-in between the UAE and, and the Kremlin, but he was also a key tie-in to this Israeli component uh, to all of this uh, at the same time. And Mike Flynn then begins to re-enter. Uh, and I want to go to Mike Flynn real quickly in terms of Ukraine and Obama and all that next. But you keep pointing out, Greg, that that it looks like Nader was the maybe the key tie-in in terms of the whole Chalabi uh, affair uh, back in the day, right? I believe so. I believe uh, Marcy Wheeler at Empty Wheel on Twitter was looking at some of the uh, the documents that came out, and um, in late sometime in the 2020 time period, it had uh, it had 
noticed that and had publicized that as being part of uh, one of these very reports that came out in the last few years that uh, there was a Nader Chalabi connection in terms of uh, of Dick Cheney. And then you also pointed out to me, remember, we were trying to figure out John Hanna, Cheney's Middle East. I think he was, uh, I forget his exact role in the administration. But he was, I believe he was Cheney's go-to Middle Eastern policy guy, uh, chief of staff, I think. And he was involved in the uh, was a lot of say in Middle East policy, and he was being investigated in terms of the Mueller report, in terms of a uh, Middle Eastern policy. And uh, it turns out that it probably it was very likely having to do with this whole Nader United Arab Emirates element. It appears, and once again, I would just point that out because this is another tie-in to between the uh, the architects of the Iraq War at a deep level and the geopolitical elements of the events we're seeing play out in this moment in terms of the bigger operation of 2016 and the. The international um, consequences of like uh, of the events that led to the installation of Trump and the geopolitical changes that are now playing out in a kind of a maybe multi-pronged area where it's a combination of like uh, discrediting the American role in the world combined with um, this uh, coming together of Middle Eastern countries, of course, with Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE at the center, Egypt's involved with El Sisi, friend of both Netanyahu or both. Uh, Israelis and Putin, it seems like, and then um, Russia and also China in the mix in terms of like this, maybe what you call the push for multipolarity, um, the new world, Trump's new world orders, I believe the New Yorker article referred to it as back in 2018, but um, that's why it, I, this is just another example of continuing to really look at it as like that you can't look at these things as being too um, – opposite from each other because it does at a deeper level there's there's continuity not direct continuity but there is in terms of i think long-term agendas there's actually continuity between what we're seeing out play now and the 2003 iraq war which was launched from the lies of in the cover-up of uh the most fateful event of our generation which of course was the attacks of september 11th and greg you uh you're right about uh, the uh, Barcy Wheeler empty wheel. And maybe now, maybe if Josh Hawley were here, he would accuse me of being the uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson of uh, under accusing George Nader. And so I just want to read from uh, this uh, empty wheel. It's very short. Uh, October 31st, 2020, titled Child Rapist George Nader introduced Dick Cheney and Ahmad Chalabi. Last night, BuzzFeed released the second-to-last dump of the 302s in their Mueller uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act. There's a ton that's interesting in it, and I'm just skimming much of it. But as I said to Jason Leopold, this George, interview, George Nader interview by itself made the FOIA dump worth the price of admission. There's a ton of details about how he brokered meetings between Eric Prince and Kirill Dmitriev. Uh, unquote here, Kirill Dmitriev, right? That's the uh, the head of the, he was the head of the the so Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund who uh, Prince was uh, working with, it looks like. Now, Prince denies that he just, he says that he just ran in to Dmitriev, I believe, when they were actually maybe in Dubai, potentially. I can't remember where they were when this uh, alleged uh, uh Unexpected meetup happened. I but. think it was the Seychelles Island. Oh, you're Seychelles right. Island, I believe, in the uh, the Indian Ocean. And real quick, real quick, there was um, this is funny. Uh, there was a tweet from uh, Empty Wheel that popped up on the same day she posted this article. "Quote: I mean, QAnon is not worth their salt if the tie between George Nader, Dick Cheney, and Ahmed Shalabi <laughs> is not the core of their conspiracy." End quote. And I would also add somebody like uh, frequent Marcy Wheeler detractor Harabi Martin as well. I mean, 
And uh, and also uh, Aaron Mate. That's one of her. Yeah. Long-term. Or Ryan Dawson of what WWRDD. What would Ryan Dawson do? <laughs> and meanwhile, these are some facts here. So let's continue on with these facts that were. Uh, yeah, that she's she's right. What what did QAnon tell you about this? What did Aaron Mate tell you about about these date the, these documents? Uh, Jeremy, I do. Sorry, sorry. Um, I do remember Owen Schroyer on Infowars tried to uh, frame Nader as a Clinton guy when uh, pictures supposedly of George Nader. And came that was out a fool. That was fake Clinton, news. So total fake news. It was a different George Nader. <laughs> you remember that? No one ever cleaned that up. I don't think. Uh, so yeah, so that was that is exactly it, right? Okay, if if this is the case, if if George Nader is involved in the deep state, then he's a Clinton guy, basically. Oh wait, no, that was a fake. Uh, that was a fake photo. We're not going to clean it up. So all right, so here's actually more of that background here. Quote: There's a ton of details about how he brokered George Nader, how George Nader brokered meetings between Eric Prince and Kirill Dmitriev, and lots of significantly redacted discussions of meetings with Don Jr. There's great theater where several times Nader denied something, including meeting, quote, any, unquote, Russian government officials at a trip to the St. Petersburg Economic Forum in June 2016, only to have Mueller's team show him a picture in the case of Putin or a text in the case of his denials that he had met Steve Bannon that forced him to immediately backtrack off his claims. Nader describes how he, a convicted pedophile during this entire period, could get along with all sides, Clinton and Trump, Iran and Saudi Arabia, everyone's favorite child rapist. But by far the craziest part of this amazing interview, the thing that has my brain reeling this afternoon has nothing to do with Russia. In describing his background, you see Nader claim that he's the one who introduced Ahmad Chalabi to Dick Cheney. And it shows, shows the uh, redacted uh, piece of it. For those who don't remember, Chalabi had a significant role in drumming up the Iraq war. Here's what I wrote after he died in 2015, and here's a piece I wrote about him 10 years earlier in advance of my book on such things. So by introducing Chalabi to Cheney, Nader played some role, how big it's unclear, in perhaps the single greatest American foreign policy debacle of all time, and now he's rotting away in prison for trafficking a boy. So, unquote, and so it's, it looks like if, if Marcy Wheeler is right about Donator, it's, uh, it was worse than I thought in terms of just being, uh, 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 child porn. And I think, I think she's right. It was actually, he was, uh, found to have been trafficking a boy. And, and of course, Marcy Wheeler is, uh, under, she, of course, there's, we've pointed out over and over again that this n- network that will deal with it, with some of the 11-9 operation are very weak when it comes to the actual depths of who generated the Iraq war. It was not Chalabi who somehow convinced the top levels of the American government to go and do this thing. He was a key piece of the large, he was part key piece, I would say, of the intelligence legend part of it about how it would be a simple a transition and they could install their guy. This guy knew the right people and all that kind of thing. But meanwhile, you got to go back to Cheney and the Pentagon and the Office of Special Plans, and then obviously what uh, Vogler uh, exposes in terms of Douglas Fife bringing in um, apparent Israeli intelligence guy, uh, Michael Makovsky, into these commanding heights. And by the way, Iraq and the Politics of Oil and Insider's Perspective by Gary Vogler, published by University of Kansas Press, only came out in 2017. 
So not that long ago. And so this is someone who saw this from the inside and saw a lot of things that he said he does not he didn't even understand for almost 10 years until he got more information based on things like seeing things that um, then foreign uh, the economic minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, said uh, in public and other elements that helped him uh, put it uh, together. So, and by the way, Chalabi, we pointed out at, at the during the Trump administration that it was uh, Ahmed Chalabi's nephew, I think, who was a um, a roommate of Steve Mnuchin, who was crucial to these networks and comes in to uh, to run Treasury. Under under Trump, but when Mnuchin was at Yale, I think, and ultimately becomes part of the Skull and Bones Society, uh, just like his father was, I believe he one of his early roommates was uh, Ch- Chalabi, uh, the nephew, I believe, of uh, Ahmed uh, Chal- Chalabi. Chalabi. I'm not sure if it's Chalabi or Chalabi. Uh, the name is Salem. Salem. S A L E M. Thank you, Greg. And so the last thing I want to point out in terms of this moment, too, is we're going to see escalation from uh, from all these sides uh, and. Especially keep your eyes on this Ivan Reichel and Michael Flynn network that seems to be the still the most potent operating remnants of the of the politically operative MAGA movement moving forward. Uh, and and actually, I, I think that um, John Brisson is very likely correct. He he hypothesizes that if Trump is to make a comeback uh, in 2024, now I'm not sure that that's the the cards uh, are in play for that necessarily. But if it were to be the case, uh, John Brisson hypothesizes that Michael Flynn will be the uh, chosen vice president in that case, rather than Mike Pence. And actually, Trump it looks like has announced that. If he were to do that, Mike Pence would not be uh, the uh, the guy. I would imagine. So I imagine there's there's not a lot of trust now after uh, Trump's people said hang Mike Pence and set up a gallows in front, and Mike Pence was uh, uncomfortable with even going with a different set of Secret Service people that uh, morning of January 6, twenty twenty one. But uh, I think Brisson is probably correct that that Mike Flynn would be the vice presidential nominee for a twenty twenty four. A Trump campaign. Obviously, Flynn was crucial to the 2016 campaign, appearing at the convention and and leading the chant of a locker up, or maybe he didn't lead it, but he he uh, said nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Locker up, locker up. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, and by the way, Flynn, this is interesting. Pointed out um, by Karen Piper on Twitter, and I'm just going to quote this. This is from uh, last November. November 14th, 2021. She says, quote, I finally get it. General Flynn betrayed his country back in 2014. As head of the DIA, he was supposed to warn Obama that Russia was about to invade Ukraine. Instead, Flynn was fired right after the invasion. Then he flew to Russia to meet Putin. And it links to a political article titled, Why Didn't the U.S. Know Sooner? And then the next tweet is, quote, look at Michael Flynn's statement about the invasion of Crimea. He says Putin, quote, will not allow the Russian Federation to fritter away while he's in charge, unquote. And he makes a weird joke about Georgia. Next tweet, quote, according to Reuters, DNI head James Clapper was warning Obama about Russian troop movements. But the DIA Flynn, quote, predicted such a move was unlikely, unquote. And that's a... based on an article, dailymaverick.co.za, Ukraine crisis, 
CIA, not Pentagon, forecast Russian move sources, unquote. By the way, doesn't that sound exactly, or it sounds very similar to what we just saw in relationship to uh, the, in this case, President Biden and uh, central, U.S. Central Intelligence making claims that the, the gathering of Russian troops on the, on the border of Ukraine was actually for a, an upcoming invasion and all kinds of people like that are now, you know, like such as the Aaron Mates, all these kinds of people are at the time were saying, these are, these are the warmongers. There's, there's no, and even, you know, even the Russian officials at the time said, what are you crazy? Where Putin said, we're just doing drills. You know, we have a right to do drills. So obviously there was now some people might say, oh, then it was then Putin didn't have a plan to invade. He only responded to what Zelensky did in the Donbass and the subsequent days and all that. That's BS. There was a plan to invade and Putin lied about it, just like some of his top uh, officials very likely lied about it. Now, some of them might not have been in the know. I can imagine it was he Putin kept this fairly close to the chest. Um but just sort of the similarities here of, of the DIA under Mike Flynn basically probably gaslighting the American president at that time saying predicted such a move was unlikely, while the CIA in this case was telling Obama that there was there looked to be moves for a potential uh, uh, Russian invasion. All right, back to this Twitter thread by Karen Piper. Quote, so Putin gets Crimea. Flynn gets a paycheck from Putin and then heads home from Moscow to work for Trump. Or as Clapper said, quote, he would latch on to any Republican candidate and then met Trump, unquote. Now, I really want to know who is funding the election audits, foreign donations. If Flynn is working for Putin to destabilize the U.S., that would explain everything. And then someone under this, of course, posts that infamous photo of the RT Gala where you have uh, Jill Stein sitting right next to Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who was just on uh, CNN, basically saying that uh, that nuclear nuclear option is not off the table for Putin if there's an, 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 an existentially understood threat. Now, we won't go into it in this show, but there is the problem with Putin's evolution or devolution in terms of what he always saw himself as the maybe the the lone leader who I who had the willingness to take on the hard responsibility of taking the Russian nation on his back and deeply identifies his own um, his own self with the destiny of of the Russian government at the very least, uh, and there are indicators that things are getting very destabilized in relationship to this the domestic situation. Uh, in terms of the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. But you see Dmitry Peskov sitting right next to Jill Stein. And then on the other side of the table, you see Mike Flynn sitting right next to Vladimir uh, Putin. And, uh, and so this is a very interesting timeline here, especially to one last thing I want to point out is that this then links back. Remember that, uh, you know, where you have, as I pointed out, you have um, Dennis Ross, making this sort of limited hangout version of Obama as the father of ISIS 
when in the early 2016 and through the spring of 2016, Dennis Ross is all over the place, basically saying Obama is too weak. He's left a, a, a sort of power vacuum, i.e. a violent force military vacuum that allowed ISIS to uh, to emerge is the way that Ross puts it. But then remember, you have a year, a couple of years before, right in the wake of the, all of this, that's this timeline that's being talked about where Flynn's DIA looks like he uh, gaslights the American president in relationship to Russian and Putin intent in, uh, in uh, Crimea. Uh, then uh, goes to Russia and uh, for this gala, goes and visits the GRU, I believe, uh, and then also uh, then comes back into the media fold and goes on with Mehdi Hassan on uh, Al Jazeera, I believe at the time, and basically does almost sort of edges, sort of anticipates the QAnon MAGA uh, talking about uh, Obama and Clinton are the fathers of ISIS. And, and basically Flynn makes that very much more direct accusation of they actually created ISIS. That became um, immortalized, I believe, through a Trump tweet that uh, the mother and father of ISIS, <laughs> uh, Clinton and Obama. And then on top of that, so it sounds like we have another horseshoe in play here where Dennis Ross like is uh, pushing the narrative that, well, this is like what we see, kind of what we see going on now, different variation of it. Um, American weakness led to the rise of ISIS because Obama is not willing to take action where it needs to be taken. Meanwhile, you've got Michael Flynn types that, uh, you know, the Obama administration's full of the biggest bloodthirsty hawks alive who created ISIS intentionally to cause this, uh, to cause a perpetual state of war and all this, and uh, and also to aid radical Islam because they hate America and all this and hate the West. So it was like a mishmash of what we call the Mecca, Mecha conspiracy of Alex Jones in there in terms of uh, the, the mishmash alliance of all of these um, varying ideologies that are all together to destroy the West. But there's the, there's the horseshoe there of Ross, like Ross isn't going to take like a, like a Russia, rationalize Russia's actions, but you know, it's because the West is weak. Whereas Flynn, like, oh, you see the West is using its corrupt strength to create all of this to happen. So, and, and then that raises the question of uh, what did Michael Ledeen know and think about Flynn's uh, statements about uh, Crimea back in 2014? Because remember, one of the big <laughs> things was uh, Flynn writing with Ledeen during the lead up to 2016, the field of fight about winning the war on terror. So it's, uh, that raises another very interesting question. Cause I didn't know about this whole Flynn, um, Flynn resignation and, and, uh, um, uh, GRU uh, trip coinciding with the uh, with Crimea in March 2014, but that makes sense from a timeline perspective, actually. Oh my gosh, dude! And yeah, so you could you could see a very strange horseshoe. I'd say be, be the the Dennis Ross Mokovsky horseshoe, and I would include both of the Mokovsky brothers because there's a uh, a David Mokovsky. Now Michael Mokovsky is this like identified as this actual Israeli foreign service slash Israeli intelligence sheep dip guy who then gets pushed into the Pentagon be, uh, in the face of Pentagon security uh, concerns by Douglas Fife uh, at the time, then then comes to head up uh, the most militant of the Israel lobby uh, public organizations, JINSA, actually the origins of the deadly exchange, the police training to Israel before the ADL even got into it. Uh, it was Jinsa who was leading the way uh, on that. And, but Michael Mikulski has a brother, and these they're from St. Louis, actually. Uh, David Mikulski, who uh, I believe actually probably is interfaced a lot with Dennis Ross and uh, uh, in terms of the uh, Institute, uh, Middle East Institute for Near East, uh, Middle East Policy, uh, or Washington Institute for Middle East, uh, Near East Policy, WINEP, 
which of course was the 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 locus of the infamous Clausen, Patrick Clausen, probably right in this time scheme, sort of right around, sort of in that time uh, of the of the. I, go for it, Greg. Oh, I think it was late 2012 was when he made the comments you're about to refer to. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It was a, so it was been a couple of years earlier in the Obama administration that Clausen, with Dennis Ross sitting next to him at this Washington Institute for Near East Policy uh, gathering says, how, how can we get an American president to war with Iran? And then talks about all of the ways in which provocations, including potential false flag operations, are implied, could be used to initiate the difficult task of, uh, of crisis initiation, I think is the way that Clausen uh, puts it. But Dennis Ross is right there and the Mikulski is the Mikulski network. So you could see in, in that way the uh, Ross-Mikulski as one side of this horseshoe, and as you pointed out, the co-authors of this uh, key-timed book drop of Michael Flynn and Michael Ledeen uh, as a sort of as a key uh, horseshoe of of this uh, national security component uh, in the United States, um, I, I would I would think um, so. All right, I had one last thing I wanted to just mention before we uh, wrap up here, Greg, which would be the question of cyber uh, potential attacks, cyber false flags. Some some might be concerned about uh, with where we have Biden saying that based on intelligence that they are seeing, there is an escalated threat right now of a Russian cyber attack. And then uh, Biden's cyber czar and Newberger uh, nay, Gar Carfunkel, Carf, yeah, Carfunkel, uh, Ann Newberger. Remember, this is a key story. She was she was put into the government uh, at that scale. She actually headed up a newly minted uh, uh, government agency, I believe. Let's see here. Let's see what it says. I can't, let's see, I can't find it here. I can't remember what position. Oh, here it is. She, she uh, prior to this role, she's the American cybersecurity official who serves as the deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging technology in the Biden administration. Prior to this role, she served for over a decade at NSA as director of cybersecurity, as assistant deputy director of operations, and as the agency's first chief risk officer. Um, and then before she came into the government, um, she was uh, the senior vice president of operations at American Stock Transfer and Trust Company. That's her dad's company, George Carfunkel. Her parents are billionaires. And there's a whole story in the background here of it looks like some kind of COVID grift operation run through uh, Jared Kushner to uh, to uh, and. Uh, Newberger's parents, who then used a stood up uh, uh, Chabad, uh, um, a Chabad organization that they looked like it was just stood up to be a front for their money, it looks like at some point. Uh, but remember this other background of Newberger that her, her husband is a, uh, is a major uh, APAC official and her parents were saved in the Operation Thunderbolt, uh, the Antabi raid by someone like uh, Netanyahu's brother was on that on that team. And so we pointed out that there is just a, a blatant issue here 
beyond the question of the familial potential corruption in terms of the COVID grift and uh, or the background of these uh, billionaires, her her parents and all of that. But there's a, a de facto conflict of interest in terms of her parents being saved by a foreign military intelligence service that at the very least creates an a psychological or emotional compromise in relationship to that uh, that country in this case Israel but now in terms of the escalating threats that are being said to come from Russia and I believe there's probably a lot of truth to that this is one of the places that Putin shows that he actually has a lot of power, including hybrid warfare information operations, what we're unpacking about the the scale of what he was involved in. And I would say he was maybe one of the key fixed points of it in terms of a, an actual government sponsoring the 2016 operations. It's got to be Kremlin operations that were really the fixed point. Now, there's other key players, obviously, in the Middle East and the United States, but that was not being sponsored in the highest levels of, uh, of United States military intelligence. And I would even say that it was probably much more run even in an Israeli fashion out of something more like a kind of OSP style cell in relationship to Netanyahu uh, and then uh, connected on through the, now maybe, you know, uh, the the highest levels of uh, the Emirati government probably was it maybe a good fixed point, actually. So in some ways, you might see the Kremlin and the UAE actually as the key nodal points of the state-sponsored aspect of the 2016 uh, operation, in addition then to the U.S. elements and the Israeli and Saudi elements and others. Um, but th- th- that proves, I think, that that the 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 combination of information warfare and cyber is really in uh, the Kremlin's wheelhouse in terms of their their power dynamics and how few people actually even really even have grappled with the basic facts that are that we're talking about in terms of how how extensive uh, this operation was to the point where large swaths of the so-called anti-war people uh, in, in in this current moment still are mimicking this whole talking point about how the the Trump Russia was a nothing burger that Tr- Russia Gate was nothing. No, it was way bigger than the New York Times or CNN were willing to even tell you about. And so that even I would say that alone even points out how the extensive power of some of these more potentially you might say invisible power dynamics of uh, of uh, of the of the Kremlin really are. And I think cyber is one of those areas too. Now there's not as quite as much direct evidence in the United States, although we see there's lots of patterns here, like I pointed out before, in terms of the uh, you know. GRU in networks, uh, the SVR in American networks. Now they definitely like have gone live with stuff in Ukraine before where they've shown their ability to cripple cr- critical infrastructure, uh, in, in, in Ukraine. Um, but I think this becomes a little bit more complicated with the figure of someone like Ann Newberger now at the commanding heights of the alleged American, uh, cyber response to this. Now she's she's just an advisor at some level, right? She's not. It actually be General Nakasonia, who I imagine is actually in the operational commanding heights of any of what the uh, American cyber military um, 
stances, potential uh, actions, responses, all of those kinds of thing. But as the she's the one who goes out in public and then uh, talks about the uh, uh, the cyber threat that is potentially incoming. And so last thing I'll say, and we'll, we'll continue on with these uh, analyses of the cyber component here, is that the we need to remember back to the uh, solar winds, solar winds hacks, which we've still really not, there's been very little digestion, either in alternative media or mainstream media about the potential long-term implications of that. And we will return to that because uh, similarly, as we begin to point out that there was this, uh, you know, this, uh, Talpiot, uh, Israeli military intelligence group, Adalom, that had been put, uh, brought into Microsoft and put in charge of their Azure cloud app security in the run-up to the escalation of the uh, corporatization of the Pentagon cloud, Jedi cloud uh, contract. There, in, in the SolarWinds case, there was this Samanaj company, an Israeli company, that was brought into Microsoft and acted then, it looks like, as the service desk component to, uh, to Microsoft, which, by the way, Microsoft, one of the most deeply invested and uh, Israeli-American uh, uh, companies uh, in the, you know, basically, probably maybe the most in many ways, longest term, they, they, they like to think of themselves as a binational company in many ways. We've kept on pointing out the, the popping up of the uh, former CTO, chief technology officer of, of Microsoft, uh, Nathan Mirvold, even to the point of where uh, Alan Dershowitz is saying, no, 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 that wasn't me. That was Nathan Mirvold, who was actually operatively involved in the Epstein Maxwell uh, underage sexual compromise uh, operation Mirvold uh, goes also to Russia with, on a trip with Esther Dyson along with uh, Epstein is there. Uh, and Mirvold is said to be the one who really gets Bill Gates deeply involved in, in Israel and in the Israel startup scene. Um, and so Samanaj, this company that's brought into Microsoft in the run-up to the to the solar winds hacked and and it looks like Microsoft potentially was the delivery vehicle or the window into uh, the solar winds uh, owning operation and we still have not unpacked what all of that means because that was then solar winds is a a network defense sort of network analysis kind of software that runs on vast portions of all kinds of U.S. government. Uh, departments, uh, all, all kinds of them, security, justice, all of that. And then vast portions of the Fortune 500 corporate sector also uh, have a, have a solar winds uh, as it's one of their network, de, quote unquote, defense uh, components. Reminds me a little bit of the uh, checkpoint uh, firewall. Uh, the Israeli Military Intelligence Unit 8200 Talpiot uh, program uh, created um, checkpoint uh, firewall technology, which is around the world in terms of uh, the cyber defense sector. And eventually we'll get into the, to how the, how the, uh, this question that came up before about Whitney Webb's missing Rockfin crypto uh, in relationship to Raul Diego how this came out at the almost the exact same time as the uh, Citizens Lab in Toronto, who were one of the main ones who did the uh, technical uh, exposure and investigation into the NSO 
by the way, Michael Flynn involved, NSO groups, uh, by the way, uh, Rod Rosenstein, uh, the limiter of the scope of the Trump-Russia investigation, Rod Rosenstein then goes to actually become counsel, it looks like, for the NSO group, uh, their Pegasus software uh, of uh, owning phones, uh, that then they, this uh, Citizens Lab group came out with a report about circles, which was a way of creating man-in-the-middle attacks based on previous uh, communications architecture, uh, 2G, 3, somewhere in the realm of 2G, 3G, that then bounced off or worked off of, uh, of um, firepoint, I mean, uh, checkpoint firewalls uh, to be able to create man-in-the-middle attacks that could be used in relationship to things like uh, stealing crypto, which is what I had proposed as a hypothesis that the um, uh, the firewall the that Circles was this other company that was sort of like a uh, a counterpoint in many ways to NSO's Pegasus technology that would be able to create man-in-the-middle attacks working off of worldwide deployed. Uh, checkpoint firewalls, and they identified a, a specific group of about 35-something countries around the world where this uh, this software was operating. And two of them were these key countries where Whitney Webb and what Raul Diego were uh, working from and where I believe that it was Chile in the case of Whitney Webb and Mexico in the case of Raul Diego. And I believe Whitney Webb brought a phone from Chile to Mexico that was involved in the question of this missing 10,000s of Rockfin uh, crypto. And I had proposed to both of them at the time to begin to help understand what might have happened if they both really didn't know how this crypto uh, got stolen or went missing, that this looked like to me that they would be targets of exactly this kind of, uh, uh, of this kind of a cyber attack based on circles and uh, checkpoint technology. Both the countries they were operating uh, in were parts of this. It sounded like in the way that Raul Diego was talking about what happened, that the, his phone had been the phone that uh, was being used for this Rockfin. By the way, Rockfin specifically went the route of you know smartphones to to deliver the uh, crypto of uh, of their of their uh, media platform. Whole story there that we've touched on before in terms of Rockfin as this key outpost of certain elements of the alternative uh, media, but that that it looked to me like all of the parameters were here for that to actually be an explanation for exactly what happened to that Rockfin crypto and that a cyber attack had been uh, 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 pulled on on both on Whitney Webb and Raul Diego. And uh, and then this the, this sort of rupture there uh, was then sort of he said, she said kind of thing to this day. The, no, no public discourse about this. And of course, at that point, they were both really dealing with large elements of Israeli intelligence. They would be obvious of some of the highest level global target, public global targets in terms of the journalistic sphere. We know NSO was targeted, used, was used all over the world to target journalists. Now, Whitney Webb and Raul Diego were actually doing stuff about Israeli intelligence uh, directly. And uh, I proposed to both of them that this was an explanation that should be at the very least explored. And to this day, crickets in public about all of that. So I just wanted to uh, bring up that component of where there's these very sort of interlocking cyber components, especially in terms of the global Israeli uh, intelligence sector. Thank you for that, and uh, very interesting. And um, 
as we begin to wrap up, I want to bring one quick, um, one more quick point into this. And that is something that uh, we, that's something that came out the other day that I think is uh, to keep an eye on in terms of where future conversations might go about things regarding a policy. And uh, this to me, what I'm about to mention, um, and I'll be quick about this as we wrap up is the um, probably the most significant uh, mentioning of of Israel, aid Israel in a critical light from um, a Republican American elected official. And that was um, Adam Kinzinger, the representative from Illinois, who was like the, uh, along with Liz Cheney, has positioned himself as the uh, kind of the leader of the GOP resistance to Trump, which of course, when you look at Liz Cheney voting with Trump 93% of the time, I mean, you know, you wonder what gives, but of course, the word father isn't everything. And I mean, Kinzinger's got a record of like supporting all of the bad neocon foreign policies and all this. I mean, so he's definitely not, you know, as John Brisson would say, he's not our guy per se, obviously. But um, Adam Kinzinger basically came out the other day, I believe this is in the aftermath of uh, Zelensky speaking before uh, virtually to the Knesset in Israel that, um, he basically said, um, sound, um, Israel, um, there will be considerations taken in terms of uh, future U.S. aid to Israel in terms of uh, what Israel is willing to do and not do with Ukraine. And I mean, it was kind of a mealy-mouthed, kind of a weak statement based on what we actually need in terms of any actual serious resistance to like the, the quote-unquote special relationship and the nature of uh, all that goes on with the U.S. and Israel. But I mean, it's, I think it's rather significant for somebody in Kinzinger's uh, position to directly um, link future aid potentially to what goes on in Ukraine. I think this is bigger because it seems to me to be a major piece in this uh, battle that we've seen playing out behind the scenes that isn't really public um, of the uh, split between even uh, aspects of American neocons as well as the American, you know, democratic uh, liberal class and uh, in Israel in terms of uh, various foreign policy geopolitical moves, which goes back to Russia in Crimea and now Russia in Ukraine and might be magnified by some of these geopolitical moves that are taking place in terms of this uh, grand bargain, as it's called, and this shift away from American power and onto what you might call multi, multi-polarity. So I thought it was a uh, very interesting and we'll link, uh, it was a, a we'll, uh, the Twitter thread of uh, Adam Kinzinger talking about the third, the third rail. He's crossed the third rail. Our friend Chris Rulon pointed out if he wanted to cross the third rail, he'd bring up like the, uh, you know, the policy towards Palestinian. But I mean, this is still a pretty, uh, might be a pretty significant move on the part of a very, um, very visual American official who's leading like the neocon, it seems like at some level, resistance to uh, the Trump wing to the GOP basically equating future aid to Israel with uh, Ukraine's, uh, what, what, Russia, what, what Israel does in uh, Ukraine. So that's very interesting. It almost seems to me like maybe... At some level, there's pressure on Israel to make a choice. Are you going to side with your Western, quote unquote, allies, or are you going to, you know, you're going to pick sides. You're going to be with us. You're almost maybe a with us or against us type of ultimatum. I'm not sure if it will come to that. There's a lot of dynamics at play, and uh, there's a lot of issues that still need to be sussed out. I mean, and even his statement is pretty weak in consideration of what we actually need. But if he's serious about this, that's very interesting, and it could be, um, it could be significant going forward that uh, this was said in public by someone as um as visual as as adam kinzinger yes and uh, as i like to point out and it's something that we've discussed a lot about in terms of the the focus of uh, what we do on the antidote too is that there are uh, uh, there's a mix of motives that you can imagine that a country or uh, a, a group of people in a country including the polit- the politicians uh 
are driven by. So, and although there are those of us that are actually driven by actual quote unquote human rights, uh, beyond the, the use of the accusation of human rights viola- violations in a very uh, selective fashion, as probably people like Adam Kinzinger are deeply involved in, that that there are there's, there's a limited amount of people, I believe, and I've, I pointed out too that this is one of the way that they sort of they they uh, c- corral the certain aspects of the liberal and progressive left by honing in only on caring about the people whose human rights uh, have been violated over there, in this case, the Palestinians, let's say. And they, and I always, I think that there's, there's always going to be a certain amount of the limit to the amount of people that are going to be deeply concerned about the other in whatever way that the other is conceived about over there or that kind of thing. And obviously the Ukrainian uh, invasion has exposed that there are these, these sort of dynamics, these psychological dynamics about who people, certain people, groups in the West uh, associate with, uh, with uh, having their, their rights violated or be having to suffer through war that doesn't seem to immediately uh, include the people from the South, let's say, of the world uh, in many ways. But even amongst those liberal to progressive groups that actually do have tried to champion the human rights of people like the Palestinians in relationship to Israel-Palestine, there's going to be a limit to that. And so we've always pointed out that there's, if you are interested in combination of peace, anti-war, and human rights, human dignity, the rights of people to be free from uh, oppression and, and, and attack and occupation and assault and death and destruction and all of that, then it really makes sense to then bring in the other motivating factors that other groups of people might have, which would include things that could be put under the banner of geopolitics, national security, national interests. And so we've always also felt that the missing component to a lot of this actually is deep politics, which will help expose from all of these three different motivators, let's say if it's the the peace uh, or anti-war, or if it's the human rights uh, component, or if it's the national security, national interest component, really honing in and digging up and resurrecting the actual history of deep politics of these, the way that politics is actually made in terms of wars of aggression, disinformation, compromise, sexual compromise, blackmail, false flag, uh, terrorism, uh, geopolitical, what it might be seen as geopolitical intrigue, such as this sort of semi-covert, really deep relationship between Israel, the UAE, the Saudis, and back to this Russian component that was still is being sort of covered up in the open at this point uh, at some level, that all of these things can be brought in together to help facilitate the, the inclination, the understanding, and the intent, the motivation for all these three different driven uh, sectors of people to be interested in in solutions that will actually be good for all of uh, for 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 first of all the human beings that are of concern in this case the Palestinians let's say but also in terms of all of these specified interests of what these different groups are are committed to in terms of their values 
So this is, I, I appreciate you bringing up this Kinzinger uh, question of, of course, he's not touching the third rail, as someone pointed out. He's maybe touching the second rail, which has to do with the U.S.-Israel special relationship, can't be questioned, that kind of thing. Of course, the third rail, I, I would actually say it's the first rail. The second rail is then solidarity with the Palestinian people. I would then say the third actual rail has to do with things like false flag terrorism, the actual origins of war, uh, large-scale geopolitical compromise operations, what the Epstein-Maxwell re operation actually represented, cyber uh, cyber attacks, the Talpiot program. This is the milieu where you can begin to really uh, help all of these networks understand their own motivations. And that truly is the third rail, uh, which is where you begin, if you explain all of these things, you begin to really feel isolated to some extent. But I would just, last thing I'd say is that I actually feel like that it's actually holding a radical middle space that ultimately will open up a much larger open space for, for people to understand what's happening and then to make proposals about what then should we do. Good points. And this is also, um, I mentioned Kinzinger, the aforementioned that Liz Cheney, who he's kind of uh, seen as like the heads of like the GOP neocon opposition to the Trump wing, um, also publicly for what it's worth, uh, criticized APAC for endorsing people who are seen as complicit in terms of like the uh, attempts to um, overturn election results and what led to January 6th, people like Elise Stefanik and uh, Jim Jordan. So there's that as well. And I believe APAC has refused to um, rescind those endorsements. There's some interesting, interesting things happening that are simmering, that have been simmering for a while that might be starting to come to the forefront more and more as this, um, well, we'll we'll keep an eye on it as uh, as we go along here. And if you don't have anything else to add, Jeremy, I think we will wrap up here. Yeah, and as as we move into our next episodes, where we will um, unpack the media roots episode, uh, where Abby and Robbie Martin discuss the, the Abby's background at RT America, and then we'll discuss all, what all of that may mean. And then we'll move into the questions about uh, Oliver Stone and his films and the background there. And one last thing I wanted to point out as a, as we transition out here, Greg, in terms of anticipating our uh, Media Roots RT America show is one thing that we both noticed was that uh, Abby pointed out in terms of this would be a similar kind of timetable in relationship maybe to Michael Flynn. Remember, this is where the big, the big uh, uprising of Abby into mainstream consciousness had to do with her statements about uh, Crimea uh, calling out uh, uh, the Russian government for invading Crimea while she was still at RT America. And then she was brought into uh, NPR and all of these places, which is also, there's a much bigger story that we'll deal with when we do that long form about that, which had to do with the retracting and sort of backpedaling and I believe in an irresponsibly intellectual and actually core political way in relationship to deep politics, specifically 9-11, that really took place at that moment uh, for Abby that sealed the deal with the way that was already man being managed by RT America management around the third rail of September 11th, really deep origins. But that Abby actually said that, that uh, Eric Prince had been brought into uh, RT America studios over the weekend. And she, she, it made, she made it sound like they, that it, it was almost like time. So they would make sure that she weren't there, uh, when it, when it happened. And, uh, so this, that's a very little interesting 
uh, factual tidbit because this would be the exact same time that Michael Flynn is uh, going through all of these things, doing all of these things where he heads from uh, the gaslighting head of DIA and then heads over to uh, to Moscow for celebrating RT America and more. Uh, as is about the same time that Abby might be talking about where Eric Prince is being brought into uh, RT America uh, headquarters. So that's just a little interesting um tidbit uh, that suggests uh, some of what we might get into during our Media Roots uh, RT America long form. Indeed, and of course, Flynn and Prince both went on to play a very significant role in the uh, both um, logistical in terms of uh, layout and uh, propaganda-wise in terms of the 2016 operation, as we've talked about before and we'll talk about again in the future. All right, very good. Thank you, Greg, very much for making time to do this and uh, for these conversations, which I uh, get a lot out of. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody out there. We will be back soon. Uh, This is March 23rd, 2022 uh, antidote. We are out. (laughs) 